Our passage this morning is Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Uh, please turn there in your Bible and follow along as I read. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles placed under the chairs in front of you. And Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servant to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. You already figured that out. Thanks, Watts. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Ransom Kent, and it is good to be back. Uh, it's always nice to go see friends and family, but um, there's something about crossing the South Carolina border, uh, and I know that I belong, or we belong here. So it's just good to be back uh, to be sharing the word with you, my church family. Well, I thought about ruining the end of Sixth Sense, but I thought, no, that's cruel. I won't do that. I won't do that. So we'll skip that part in my written notes here. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump right into Scripture. Father, thank you for a building uh, that we can gather in to hear the word preached, to, to hear prayers said and offered, to hear songs sung. It's been mentioned several times this morning, we are here for one reason, and that is to give glory to God. And so I pray this morning that this sermon does the same, that our hearts, even the hearts of the preacher, are called out, that our sin is made apparent, that the grace of Jesus is made even more apparent, and that we would respond. Thank you for bringing your spirit here. It's here already. I pray that it would be active, and we would feel and know its presence. Thank you again. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here in Matthew 22, um, we've moved ahead a little bit from the last couple sermons. So let's catch up with where Jesus is in the story of Matthew. So uh, we've been seeing how Jesus, the last several sermons have been the, these sermons based on the, the time where Jesus is uh, approaching Jerusalem. Well, now he has entered Jerusalem. He, he, the triumphal entry, of course, is the famous uh, time where they're, they're waving their palm branches and, and proclaiming him as the Messiah. Um, and Jesus doesn't waste any time. He gets right to work. Remember what he's in Jerusalem for. He's not there to be praised as the Messiah. He's there to be rejected, arrested, and killed. And so here in Matthew 22, this morning we're actually looking at the third of three parables that, he, uh, that he's telling. Um, his interaction with the chief priests 
and the elders and the Pharisees has taken a tick up. First, we see him cleansing the temple. Uh, and so we'll, get, we'll describe more what happens there in a moment. But Jesus has gone and he's cleansed the temple. He's turned, turned over tables. He's used a whip. He's been very angry with what's going on there. And then he tells two stories. So the first story he tells, uh, he, it's about two sons. And a father comes to these two sons and he says, I want you to go out in the field to work. And the first son says, no, I won't. And the second son says, you got it, dad. Uh, that's in the, the, the Greek. Um, the first son, uh, interestingly enough, ends up going out to work. He says no at first, and then he goes out to work. The second son who gives lip service to the dad's command doesn't ever end up going out to work. And so Jesus finishes that parable like this. He's talking to the chief priest, and he says to the chief priests and the Pharisees, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Now listen to this as far as a moral to the story goes. It's pretty direct. Jesus said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Woohoo! He is not holding back. Jesus is in Jerusalem to be rejected, arrested, and killed. And he is speaking very blunt truth to the Pharisees and the chief priests. The second parable he tells is about a vineyard, and there's an owner to that vineyard, and he takes off for one reason or another, and he, he rents out his vineyard to these workers. And the worker's job is to, of course, uh, do what they need to do with the grapes and, and those things, and then when it's harvest time, he'll come and collect. Well, harvest time comes, and, and they end up murdering his son who comes to collect the vineyard. And here's the result of that parable when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They know what he's talking about. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him, the people held him to be a prophet. So what's happening in Jesus' life in this point of Matthew? The heat is being turned up. There is no turning back from the cross. The, the events that will set up what we're going to celebrate here in a couple weeks, Passion Week, are, are happening right here before our eyes. He is confronting his enemies. And so that final phase of friction between Jesus, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the elders, that's what we're witnessing here. And so we come to this third parable. It's about a wedding feast. And, and in this parable, uh, there's a definite reference to the past. And so we'll see how Jesus is actually recounting what the experience of Israel has been with God. But then there's this also definite message to us now. There's a reference to the church. The church, we are the full revelation of what God started to do in the past. And so, as you see the name of the sermon, something old, something new, something borrowed, and something completely untrue, we're going to talk about a wedding today and all of those facets you can find here in this story. Let's start with something old. Look with me, if you will, at verses 1 and 2. From the passage. It says here, And Jesus spoke again to them in parables, again the third of three parables, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So let's stop right there. First and foremost, what we can see from this beginning of the story is that this is the story of Scripture. This phrase, a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, this is the story of all of Scripture. What has Scripture always been about? What has the interaction of God with man always been about? About a wedding feast for his son, Jesus Christ. Scripture's one story. One story. It's not two separate stories where God started with Israel and now he's moving on to something else. No, the Scripture's one story. And the story is about the son of the king and his wedding feast. 
Jesus in Matthew 9.15 even says that the Pharisees are, are ridiculing him about some of the, the, the habits of his disciples and how they don't fast. And Jesus' response is, how can we mourn while the bridegroom is with them? Do you see? Jesus, it's always been about the wedding feast. It's always been about Jesus. And this is what we call progressive revelation. Not regulation, that's not a word. Progressive revelation, okay? Progressive revelation. Charles Hodge in his systematic theology says this, what at first is only obscurely intimated, meaning like referred to, is gradually unfolded in subsequent parts of the sacred volume, that's scripture, until the truth is revealed in its fullness. This is what progressive revelation is. What we saw before, we, okay, maybe we see it, but as Jesus Christ comes, he, he is the full revelation of what it's all about. We'll talk more about that later. Back to the story. Verses 3 through 6 describe a, a tradition back in the ancient times. Uh, when, when the king would throw a feast, he would send two invitations. In our culture, it's kind of like the save the date and then the official invitation. But with the save the date in these times, you did respond. You said, yes, I will be there, or no, I will not. So here we have the king who said, listen, there will be a feast at one point when it's ready. I'll let you know. Will you come? And, and the people, his subjects in the story said, yes. It says here in verses 3 and 4, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited. They had already been invited. They had already responded yes to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And then again in verse 4, and again he sent out other servants. He said, tell those who are invited, see I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's time. This is the second invitation, the reminder that the feast is ready. What happens? They're rejected. But they paid no attention, the people who were invited. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. This is the old. This is a description of Israel's interaction with God. Think about this. What was the first invitation? They had just been rescued from Egypt. They sat at the base of Mount Sinai, and God is about to give them the covenant. Here's what it means to be my people. Here's what it means for me to be your God. And here's what they say in Exodus 19. All the people answered together, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of, of the people to the Lord. In other words, yes, yes, we will be your people. Yes, we want you to be our God. They responded, the invitation, what you have planned for us, God, what you have planned for us, Yahweh, we are on board with that. And then as the Old Testament goes on, what happens? God begins to announce that the coming of the Son is near. As we have in the prophets, the people have sinned, the people have wandered, and what are the prophets doing? They're saying, come back, come back. Here's a good example from 2 Chronicles. Zechariah, the prophet, says this, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Listen to the response. But they conspired against him, and by the command of the king, they stoned him with stones. Where? The court of the house of the Lord. How ironic is that? The prophets again and again and again, what are they doing in the Old Testament? They're saying, come back to God. You've wandered. Come back, obey. This is what God wants you to do. Later in Isaiah, he says, listen, I'm going to do something new and I'm telling you about it now, even before it happens. And what is the response of the people? Rejection. Of course, Jesus, and we can see this from the previous parable in Matthew 21, 
Jesus is the final rejection. <laughs> He's the, the last straw. You see, the advent of Jesus, the arrival of the God-man, is the beginning of the celebration. It's the beginning of the party. The, the table is set. And here, Jesus himself, the very Son of God, is saying, come to the party. And yet, what happens? The, the chief priests, the religious leaders, want absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, they're jealous. Listen to Matthew 21. This is their, their response to the second parable. Or this is what happened in the end of the second parable. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Jesus, Jesus is calling out the chief priests and the Pharisees for their jealousy. Why did they hate Jesus so much? He was distracting from their power. He threatened their position. And here's their response. Of the, of the people who had the vineyard, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Exactly what's going to happen to Jesus here in just a couple chapters. They know that he's talking about them. Back to the story. What's the result of the rejection of the invitation, the second invitation? Verse 7. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Seems like an overreaction a little bit. Overreact much, right? They didn't come to the party. So what did he do? He sent troops and burned their city to the ground. Now listen, for us, it may seem like an overreaction. Here, Matthew is writing to an audience. Remember, the context must be understood. He's writing to an audience who understands exactly what he's talking about. Now first... This result, verse 7, has happened in ways other times in Israel's history. Think about this. Assyria came in and what? Captured Israel and brought them into exile. Babylon came in and captured Judah and brought them into exile. But those things were temporary. The readers of Matthew understand that the more permanent uh, um, uh, verdict has been placed. And that would be the burning of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So what's happening as Matthew writes this story, he's writing about Jesus that's before 70 AD. He's writing to people who have seen Titus, the general of Rome, come and raise the city to the ground. It was a horrible sight. Rome came in. They'd had enough of Israel's rebellion. And they tore the city to, down. They burned it. This is the end, as we know it, of ancient Israelite religion. There's no more place to sacrifice there's, there's no more tracking of what tribe you're a part of. It's gone. It's destroyed. The Jewish religion from that point on, even to this day, is a modification of Pharisaical teachings. That's what it is. And so 70 AD, what, what Matthew's kind of nodding at here is that is the final judgment of what God had done before. The rejection of Jesus Christ caused the end of that part of the story. Now, God's not ending it and starting something new. Again, we're going to see how God has, this is a mark of the full revelation. Jesus is the, the, the thing that was meant in the Scriptures from the beginning. We're not going back. That's something old. Now, let's look at something new. Israel had accepted the first invitation of God. We will be your people. You will be our God. And he, brought, he, he said, the time for the feast is now. The time for the feast is now. And they said, no, thank you. And so here we have something new. Verse 8. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads. That means like the corner of the street. And invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Literally anyone. 
And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This, we're going back to this idea of progressive revelation. This is the, the, the full revelation of what God has been intending to do from the beginning of time. Galatians puts it this way, so then the law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What was the purpose of the Old Testament? To bring God's people along till this moment, until Jesus Christ. An illustration that might help you understand, and I think maybe I used this last Easter, but the Old Testament, um, it, it can be understood as a dimly lit room. Think about this. So, uh, if we were to turn the lights off and it were dark outside, would that change what's in the room? No, but we wouldn't be able to see it very clearly. So think about the Old Testament like this. It's a full, fully furnished room, but the lights are dimmed. It's not been fully revealed. Here's a quick example. We're going to look at an Old Testament passage and look at the, the way the New Testament views that passage. Very quickly, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Abram is receiving a promise from God, and God says this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And listen to the promise. In you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. This is a promise. All the families of earth shall be blessed. Now, what was a point of pride for the Israelites? We are the children of Abraham. Listen to how Paul talks about this passage in Galatians. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, so Scripture foresees God justifying the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So what Paul is saying is, it's not just a promise to Abram, this is actually the gospel being preached in Genesis 12. God is preaching the gospel to Abraham, saying, I will save Someone from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. The gospel being preached. And then he finishes this way. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What did Jesus do? Jesus' arrival is almost as if he flicked on the light. Jesus is showing us the full picture. Jesus is the full revelation of what God has always been doing. What he's still doing. Going back to the cleansing of the temple, what an exciting story. Uh, Jesus gets very angry and he starts tipping tables and telling people to get out. What's, what's the deal with that? He's not just being the rage monster, right? He, he is actually serving a purpose. In, in the layout of the temple, there was this large courtyard called the Courtyard of the Gentiles. This place was meant to be a place where people from, again, any tribe, any nation, any tongue could come and pray and honor God. And what had happened? The, the, the religious leaders, the people in Jerusalem had set up a basic ancient-style mini-mall there. They were exchanging goods, and they were exchanging money. And it was too full for what? The Gentiles to come and worship. And so the clearing of the temple is not just Jesus making a point. The clearing of the temple is Jesus saying that every tribe, every nation, every tongue, it, it belongs to me. It's coming to me. And so in this passage, we see a picture of this full revelation. What's the goal of God's plan? Verse 10, so the wedding hall would be filled with guests. That's the goal of God's plans, to fill the, the, the wedding hall for Jesus. 
What's the way, the method? He tells his servants, go and grab any kind of person. Verse 9, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And what's the result? They went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. And that's who fills the wedding hall. Everybody. Every kind of person. Listen, if, if you don't get much out of today's sermon, listen to this. Listen to this. This is the truth that's being, that's being proclaimed here. Nothing about you excludes you from the kingdom. Nothing about you excludes you from the kingdom. Nothing about me excludes me from the kingdom. It's not about us. It's about the kindness and the grace of God. And now that is only possible through one means, and that is to borrow something, okay? Something borrowed, verses 11 and 12. First of all, what we're going to talk about this something borrowed, it's suggested. So listen, it's not explicit. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. So what we're talking about here, the suggested thing, is this potential tradition where kings throwing a feast would provide the proper clothes for their guest. Now, uh, most of the scholars uh, who, who I would respect on the, on the book of Matthew are about 50-50 on whether this is actually what's going on here. But listen to this. John Stott says this, In this way, the poor need not be ashamed of their rags, and the rich no right to be proud of their dinner jackets or gowns. All came in on the same footing, just as in the parable of the workers in the vineyard. There is room neither for embarrassment nor pride in the feast of the kingdom. Both attitudes ruin the enjoyment. So John Stott, very respected, very well known. What he's saying is, listen, this is a, an image of rather than us being able to come in on our own recognizance, come in on our own, our own characteristics or skills. No, the king is providing clothes. The king is providing clothes. And I would just remind us with parables, let's not overwhip the potatoes. What's the point? What's the point? The point is this man had an opportunity to wear different clothes and he rejected it. He rejected it. He said, no, thank you. He had an opportunity and he did not take it. In case you're wondering if this is a good interpretation, throughout all of Scripture, we learn about something called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Big words. Imputed righteousness. What does that mean? It's this exact illustration. We don't have the, the right clothes for the party. We can't have the right. that We sang today, we, we have filthy rags. is all that we bring. And so what must we do to, to be in God's presence? We must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our skills, there's no skills that we have that earn our way in. There's nothing about me in particular that makes me worthy of the party over anyone else. We have nothing, and God provides it all. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's explaining this to the Corinthian church. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not powerful, not of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And he goes on to say, what, he chose what is weak to shame the strong. And on and on and on. Listen, here's the truth. Here's the truth. We are invited to the party. We're invited to the party because of the love of God for his son, Jesus. Do you hear that? We're invited First and foremost, not because he loves the people in the streets. He wants a full party for his son. We're invited because of Jesus. And beyond that, 
were admitted to the party because of the generosity, the mercy, and the grace of the Father on behalf of who? Jesus. Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Why are we invited? Jesus. Why are we even in the party? Jesus. Another scholar said about our status before God, we are literally not fit to be seen before God. Literally. There's nothing about us that we can bring that God's like, oh, okay, that, that counts as wedding clothes. Which brings us to something completely untrue. Sorry, nothing blue. I, I tried, but nothing blue. So we're going completely untrue this morning. Same verses. When the king came to look at the guest, he saw somebody who was wearing their own clothes. Wearing their own clothes. And he said, why aren't you wearing the wedding clothes? And I love this. He was he's like, ah. That's all he said, ah. Okay, and what happened? Verse 13, the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. What's the error of the underdressed man? What's his error? His error is he thought his best was good enough for God. He thought his best was good enough for God. I don't need the wedding clothes. This is, this is the best thing I have. Why would this be acceptable? And he was dead wrong. He got tied up and thrown out. That's pretty embarrassing. Tied up and thrown out. He thought his best was good enough for God. But how, so what was he mistaken about? He was mistaken about his own worthiness. He overestimated his own worthiness. He thought he had enough credit, enough merit to be accepted. He misunderstood and he undervalued the king's generosity. Here's a garment for you, sir. I'm good. Thank you so much. Don't need it. Lastly, he was not serious in any way about his participation in the celebration. He wasn't serious about it. Again, John Stott said this, it's a wedding feast for his son. The invitation goes out far and wide. If you reject it, you miss the party. If you think you can get in, relying on your own fitness, you will be thrown out. Church, this is the party. (laughs) We are God's people. This is the party. And there ain't no party like a God's people party, especially on a Sunday at a Reformed Presbyterian church, right? Settle down, all right? This is the party. God's people is the party. And as God's servants, we're called We're charged with gathering in any and all kinds of people. You're invited, you're invited, you're invited. Even though we have no right to be invited, let alone attend. We're here by no merit of our own. Remember, what's the point of the party? It isn't us. It's not our preferences. It's not how good we are. The point of the party is to fill the hall for the Son. The point of the celebration is the Son, Jesus, to celebrate Him. It's to honor Him. If you look at the structure of this parable, I think it's interesting how Jesus starts. He starts with Israel. He starts with how things used to be and how things went down and how things went bad. I think He does this to to kind of pull something out in our hearts because what are we tempted to do? Look down our noses at Israel. Oh, they had so many chances. The prophets were were right there calling them back to God. I can't believe they messed it up so badly. 
Our, our, our temptation is to think that we somehow are more worthy than they were. And that, that couldn't be farther from the truth. And then Jesus ends it in this particular way. I think it exposes something in our hearts. And it, I think it's his kindness that wants to show us our sin. And so we go back to the underdressed guest. He has, if you think about it, committed the exact same wrong as the Israelites. He accepted the first invitation. Sure, I'll come. But he, just like the others, I, I got work to do, or I'm going to kill the servant. He didn't take it seriously at all. I, I don't need to dress up. I'm good. Thank you so much. He assumes too much. He thinks that his salvation in the traditional sense is a privilege. He, he, it's just his because it's his. He thinks it's something that he's owed. He thinks it's something that he can earn. And Jesus gives a condemnation to that thinking. He says in verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. We could go into a whole thing about predestination and things like that, but here's the basic truth of those words. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to to the Lord. We have no part in our salvation other than needing it. Do you hear that? We have no part in our salvation other than really, 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 really needing it. So as we close out this sermon, I have three applications. First, to those of you who are seeking, those of you who are thinking about who Jesus is, you're, maybe you're not sure. Those of you who have not accepted the invitation, the first application is respond to the invitation. Respond, yes. Say yes. I want to be a part of the party. Come to Christ. It's important to understand, hearing the call isn't the same as answering the call. Knowing that Jesus died for your sins isn't the same as believing that Jesus died for your sins. Feeling good that God loves you and wants you in his kingdom isn't the same as following him in faith. It's not the same thing. The call of Jesus Christ is serious. But this is the beautiful thing. The invitation is extended. It's offered right now. It's not pulled back. So first, respond. The invitation, church, for us, the second application, we have two the first thing we need to do in response to this truth is we need to work at shedding every thread of self-righteousness. Shedding every thread of it. We need to lean fully into the righteousness of Christ. And here's what I mean by that. Because the call is serious, let me just talk about myself. It makes it easier, all right? Let me talk about myself. I need to slow down in my life and I need to hash out my sins with the Lord. <laughs> I need to know that I'm a sinner. I need to figure out what they are. I need to know and be aware of them. And here's the deal. When I figure them out and I become aware of them, I need to accept that they're my sin. Mine. They're my sin. I don't justify them away. I take the guilty verdict. My sin. And in doing that, what's going to happen? I'm going to realize that nothing in Ransom Kent is worthy of God's acceptance. Nothing. I'm not the bee's knees, spiritually speaking. <laughs> um, I'm not all that in a bag of chips. I'm not, there's nothing, nothing about me. Nothing. 
deserves God's acceptance. I'm not enticing to God. Ooh, ransom, that seems nice. No, I have nothing. I don't have the apparel to be found inoffensive, let alone acceptable to God. And listen, this is true of every single one of us. Not just true of me. I know it's true of me. But listen to this. That's all dark and gloomy and depressing, but here's the reality. On account of Jesus Christ, hear this, God accepts ransom anyway. You, if you're just like me, you have nothing to offer, nothing but filthy rags, on account of Jesus Christ, God accepts you anyway. Do you see how these truths can unlock something extraordinary? Do you see how if you can grasp and I can grasp the, the true depth of our sin and we know that God's grace is greater and deeper and wider, what kind of things unlock in our lives? We don't need self-righteousness. We don't need it. We don't need any shred of it. The third thing I... It's a good application, I think, from this passage. Is that we, as participants in the party, that we, we take our walk with Christ as seriously as he does. I think it's a good application. Let's take our walk as seriously as Christ does. Listen, as your pastor, especially over these last several sermons, I often have the discussion in my mind. It's nothing crazy. It's just kind of a, a thought process. And I, I, I think often about how do I keep the gospel from becoming this broken record thing? There's only so many ways you can say the truth of Scripture. And, I, and my, my concern is, man, I don't want to lose the freshness of biblical truth. And so every time I, I prepare a sermon and I bring it, my hope is that it'll strike someone brand new. That's my hope. Now, how do I do that? Well, study helps. My study habits certainly pour into that. But here's a, here's a truth check for myself. I control none of that. I don't control that at all. I can't make you think different things. I can't make you feel or believe different things. It's not something I control. The Holy Spirit is the one who interfaces with each and every one of you and convicts your heart and calls you to Christ. That's it. And so in some sense, my words stop right here and the Holy Spirit takes over from there. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. And so as your friend and your pastor who's on this journey of discipleship with you, here's what I want us to do. We all need to pause. We all need to pause and realize just how often, think about these last few sermons, how often Christ calls us to take our walk seriously. Jesus says, it's, it's all or nothing in a sense. You need to give everything to me. Think about how Matthew describes the life of a disciple. It's a rejection of the old <laughs> and acceptance of the new. It's a rejection and a, rec excuse me, a recognition of this gift, this great gift, these wedding clothes, the righteousness of Christ that we have been given, not because we earned it, but because of the graciousness and kindness of God toward us. And it's a rejection of the lie something completely untrue, that we can live our lives however we please. It's just not true. 
It's like being at this party and being like, I'll just wear what I got. Church, I want you to hear this, and I, I trust the Spirit to translate it to whatever you need to hear this morning, but just being at the party isn't enough. Just being at the party isn't enough. That's what's happening here. Just being here, oh, I, I accepted the first invitation. The king does not think that's enough. The kingdom, church, our discipleship is an all-in affair. Now, here's the reality. It's going to take all of our lives, the rest of our lives, to evaluate where we're not all in and to keep pushing and keep pushing. But the, the kindness and the beauty of Christ calls us to it. There's nothing about us that excludes us. And even though we're not worthy of any piece of it, because of Jesus Christ, God accepts us anyway. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you've had a plan. And that plan has been to host a wedding feast for your son. The feast has begun. You've been gathering in your guests even now. We're a part of that. Every single one of us in one way or another have been gathered in off the street, brought in no matter who we are, what we've done. You've brought us in. You've given us clothes that don't belong to us so that we might be found acceptable before God. That is a gift that will last for eternity. So this morning, I pray that your goodness, your goodness will lead us to ongoing repentance. Your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your long-suffering will lead us to repentance I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to rehearse the wedding feast here in a moment with the Lord's Supper. I pray that we all take this opportunity. Life can be busy, but here in a moment, we have a few moments together to pause, to evaluate our sin, to, to hash it out with you, to accept that we bring nothing to the table. We're the foremost of sinners, and yet because of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his advocacy for us, we are invited and accepted at the table. Praise your name. Praise the name of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.